The metaverse is emerging as the next big technology platform and promises to be the next frontier for human experiences on the internet. Into the Metaverse covers companies, technologies, and trends that are bringing these promises to life. Join creator and host Jonathan Ross Friedman, founder and CEO of SuperSocial, as he interviews the brilliant minds that are building, shaping, and investing in the Metaverse. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Into the Metaverse. Today, I'm very excited to welcome, or better say re-welcome, uh, Matthew Canterman, Director of Research at Roundhill Investments and my original collaborator with Into the Metaverse podcast, as you all remember. Roundhill Investments has been opening new pathways for investors since 2018. They were the first to turn emerging themes such as sports betting and the metaverse into easy-to-invest ETFs. Before joining Roundhill, Matthew was the Director of Research at Ball Metaverse Research Partners, and prior to that, Senior Analyst and Team Leader for Bloomberg Intelligence, which is how and when we met for the first time. Matthew, so great to have you again on the podcast as a full-time guest. We're back. We're doing it again. We're running it back. You know, it's uh, it's good to be back. It's been a while, but uh, it's been exciting. Well, let's, let's dive into it. Exciting. Excellent. Just a disclaimer, everything we're discussing on the podcast today is not a financial advice. With that in mind, Matthew, let's jump straight into the first favorite question that we enjoyed asking so many amazing guests. And as we continue to kind of create an ever-growing consensus on what exactly is the metaverse and with all of the new technologies, I'm so excited and curious about your approach and definition to how you're thinking about the metaverse. And so to you, what is the metaverse as of today and what do you think it's going to become? And then also as a follow-up to that, how do other emerging technologies like blockchain, generative AI, digital twins, et cetera, et cetera, fit into your definition of the metaverse today? Yeah, fun to be on this side of the question for a change. Uh, when you think about the metaverse and how I think about it and how my view on it has evolved over the last several years of being involved in researching the space, you know, Matthew Ball, who I used to work for, does, does a very good job of laying it out. And he's our business partner now on, on the METV ETF, but... Um, you know, he's got a lengthy definition covering, you know, what is it, six, seven different technologies. And he goes into a good definition of also separating Web3 blockchain from the metaverse. But, you know, I go back to one of our earliest episodes with Mark Petit. The metaverse is just the internet enabled by real-time 3D. It's just taking every interaction we have in the internet, but also in the real world and layering it and enhancing it with real-time 3D technologies. And I think that's that's a powerful definition, and I also like that because it's not deterministic. And we've talked a lot about this in our in our history. Is you know many people as soon as Facebook changed its name to Meta, associated the metaverse with VR. You're determining that that hardware becomes the the, the, the standard de facto for the metaverse. And I and I never agreed with that. We never agreed with that. And so I like that broad definition because it really does let developers, creators, engineers figure out how best to make this stuff without determining what gets there. Now, how these other technologies fit in, whether it's VR, it's an access device. Sure. I think Apple's vision, and we'll talk about the Vision Pro more in depth, I'm sure, but is more about a new computing platform and trying to really, you know, think about what's life after the iPhone for Apple. Um, how that fits into the metaverse honestly comes down to the content. And this device in of itself probably does not do it, but it sets the stage for uh, innovation and, and implementation of different technologies around, you know, sorts of head-worn devices that I think over time we can get towards that original vision of something like Google Glass, which I think is interesting and really a true testament of what the metaverse is, how things like 
blockchain and crypto fit in, I think it's honestly still undecided because, you know, at, at, at the end of the day, and Matthew Ball does lay this out nicely in, in his book, the metaverse defines a set of technological protocols at the end of the day. What Web3 really is talking about is more of a social political movement in terms of debanking, taking control of your of your of your digital property. Uh, and and he makes the analogy that it's like associating the rise of democracy in the in the 19th and 20th century with the industrial revolution. Like they're interrelated and one helps to drive the other and vice versa, but they're not the same thing. And that's that and I like that because I, I do think that there's ways that blockchain powered protocols can be implemented to make metaverse experiences valuable. You know, we'll see how we get there. We talked with uh, Wildcard a, a while back with with Paul from Wildcard and and you know Paul Bettner and, and what they're doing. But you know, we'll see what what developers really do to implement these protocols. I also like to point out that real blockchain development is is and this came up in our Tim O'Reilly episode, right? Real blockchain development has only been going on for what seven years in earnest like yes the bitcoin white paper was was the early 2010s but in in reality the development inside of blockchain is only still very young whereas even at the time of the dot-com bubble internet protocol was 30 years old at that point it was came from the 60s so we're still in the very early stages of even knowing what blockchain can do let alone implementing it in experiences i mean a few items to double click on first and foremost the the form factor point you've raised which is I think the difference of what I think Apple has done with Vision Pro versus Meta and Quest and changing the name from Facebook to Meta. Number one, Apple didn't use the word metaverse. And in this way, they did not associate the device and probably learn from the pitfalls of Facebook. They did not associate the new device ecosystem with a very big, unclear theme like the metaverse. It's almost like saying in 1982, when Apple launched the Macintosh, is saying, here is a new device that is going to open up the internet for you. Now imagine saying the internet in 1982 to millions of people around the world. That is exactly, I think, why it's so wise of Apple not to focus on that. Having said that, the other piece that I like about what they've done, they've defined it as a, the first spatial computer. And I think that fits so well to what you and I have been talking about for so long, which is the metaverse, just like the internet, is going to be something that is accessible from multiple devices. Essentially, any computational device, any computing gateway that allows you access to 3D environments. And in this way, the spatial computer that Apple has built with the Vision Pro is going to be one of multiple ways and gateways into quote-unquote, the metaverse. And and I think that is in stark con contradiction to what Meta has done, which is really associating the metaverse with VR and, and really kind of confusing a lot of people, which is interesting. And you're saying that after the Apple, the presentation of the Vision Pro, you haven't had the same reaction from many people in the world that, okay, Apple has launched the metaverse or Apple is the metaverse. Like, no one has claimed that. What people did talk about is that Apple didn't discuss at all and didn't define at all words like the metaverse. And I think that was very smart because probably internally, and this is just my hypothesis, at Apple, I think they understand that the metaverse, whatever it becomes, it's a very big theme. There are not going to be metaverses. 
there's not going to be these isolated environments that each of them is a metaverse because the metaverse, if happens, it's a, such a broad concept, which is essentially saying a new type of access to the internet and to your point, and something I, that resonates with me as well. And we talked to Rev Liberidian about it as well from NVIDIA many times, which is really, we're talking about the evolution of the internet or a sort of a 3D internet, so to speak, which you're going to be able to access from so many different form factors. Um, so, so that's kind of one thing. I don't know if you want to react to that before I jump into the other point. Yeah, just sticking with Apple while we're there, I actually found it interesting and notable that there was reports from Mark Gurman, I believe, afterwards that they were reluctant to even discuss the price. I, I, I think Apple understands that this is not a mass consumer device yet. He's already reporting that they're planning a cheaper device in two years as cost curve comes down. This is purely a developer device, maybe a productivity device for high-end employees, you know, Someone made the point, hey, if you're paying developers 300 to 500K in the Bay Area, three and a half grand, four grand with prescription lenses, and if it can make them more efficient, could be worth it. So like from a productivity standpoint, you, it, it can make sense from a, from a uh, you know, developer seeding the ecosystem, it makes sense. The partnership with Unity in that, in that regards is very valuable because, hey, most mobile games are made on on unity and so hey you can just make your games that work on mobile work on the on the vision like that's a great tool for developers to get used to it and maybe they have one in the office that they prototype with and so in two three five years whatever it may be we get to a point where all right now we have devices that are at a reasonable price we're comfortable with whatever the future form factor which has to be less bulky because this form factor won't do it but whatever future iterative form factor becomes more amenable to the consumer and can replace the iPhone. I mean, if the device comes down to a thousand to $2,000, like we spend that on iPhones. Like that's, if that, if that is your main connectivity device for the internet, for communication, for social interaction, that's a reasonable price to pay for that. I mean, people do that today. They, I think people are still kind of anchored to the, I only paid $200 way back when for my iPhone. And now we've had this inflation to 1500. They forget about subsidies from carriers, but you know, a thousand to 2000 is kind of what people are paying now. And so having a device that replaces the phone and, and it is, it is the next platform for them uh, when we get there is valuable. Now the developer ecosystem will make or break it just like the iPhone. And I'm also of the opinion that if you really think this and you believe this, well, Meta's already got the Quest 3 is coming out this year at a much more affordable price point. The problem they don't have is they don't have the developer ecosystem. And so this has been the issue all along is they don't have the, whether it's within Horizon or other apps, they just don't have enough content to justify the outlay. That's why I think the Unity partnership and, you know, there's probably politics behind why not Epic Games, but the Unity partnership makes a lot of sense because now you've got this huge catalog of content that's easily accessible to get you started. Yeah, and one point that I think is also interesting to lay out, and I agree with what you're saying, is a lot of people have compared the Vision Pro to the iPhone, and I actually think it's more of a Macintosh analogy, right? The Macintosh became like a business device, a business machine, very expensive. Very few consumers, if at all, have bought a Macintosh. I think the Vision Pro, the Vision Pro to me is more of a Macintosh moment rather than an iPhone moment. Maybe V3, V4, V5 of Vision Pro could have that iPhone moment. And even if it doesn't, that's okay. Because Apple is still going to find a way to turn the Vision Pro into a 20, 30, 40, 50 billion dollar business over the next five to seven years. 
just like they've done with the, with the Apple Watch, which is now the largest, basically the best-selling watch in the world. People kind of forget that their Apple has this little tiny business of a watch that is actually the largest watchmaker in the world. And these um, things. And these things as well. So they're also <laughs> the largest, you know, headphones or ear, earbuds or whatever you want to call the category, uh, listening devices, uh, also the biggest on that. So <clears throat> Apple is going to create a great business based on the Vision Pro. It may not be the iPhone yet. It may potentially never be an iPhone, but it's definitely going to be an important business and an important category, which will propel the wider category. And by the way, you mentioned the price of the iPhone today. If you buy the biggest, the, the the Apple, the iPhone 14 Pro, and you add a bunch of stuff and you want a lot of memory, like you actually end up with $1,400, $1,500 device. Yeah. And the question for investors, though, with Apple is, to your point, is this an enterprise productivity high-end creator similar to the high-end Macs, MacBooks, et cetera, which for any other company in the world is a great business, but for Apple doesn't move the needle, Right. Or is this the next platform and really drives the next step up in services revenue? Because for investors, it's all about how are we driving incremental ARPU from services on the user base and the hardware base. Some of that is from selling accessories like headphones, like the watch, which I have also. But for investors, it's really what's the services engine and selling, you know, 10 million units a year even of Vision Pro, which would be massively successful in three to five years, like, you know. That's more than that has done. That would be a massive success. That is a rounding error for Apple. A hundred percent. Well, that is as long as they continue to sell about 100, 200 million iPhones a year, which they still do, which is unbelievable when you think of it. Um, the other point about this topic around Apple and Vision Pro is let's talk a bit about Meta. And I think I've talked previously on the podcast about the analogy between um, Android and the approach that Mark Zuckerberg is taking with Meta. And I think, I'm curious about your POV, but you know, in my mind, it's so fundamental that Zuckerberg can show a distinctive strategy. He can't win playing the Apple game, which is end-to-end -end control of the supply chain, end-to-end -end integration of hardware, software content. He's not going to win on the high-end devices. He will never beat them. So he's going for a system that can be deployed and applied by any device makers, including their own devices, very much with sort of the Android open source approach and becoming also a more favorable brand as a for developer ecosystem. And so I think we have those two very distinct strategies that these companies are going after. Um, curious about your PAV, if you see it in the same way, and if you think that can allow Meta to gain some traction in the market. I think for Meta, the... The dichotomy in the strategy is the fact that they want to build everything themselves, but they also want to be the open platform, which doesn't really jive, right? Like Zuckerberg is, we need to develop all of the AR technology. We need to develop all the VR technology or buy it. We need to develop all of the AI technology. We need to develop all the, we need to make everything proprietary, but then be an open platform for that. Like that doesn't really jive with being an open platform. If you want to be an open platform, just let people bring your own devices, bring your own technology, bring your own AI, right? So it's, he's kind of straddling both sides. I think part of it is pandering to investors saying, hey, we're going to have proprietary IP because, you know, Google doesn't, aside from search, doesn't monetize Android very well. The license fees they get on Android don't monetize. I mean, they make their money on search and YouTube. And so 
I think part of it is recognizing that just being an open source software layer isn't extremely valuable and to really own the profit pool, the profit share, and to really be a valuable piece of the ecosystem, you need to have a, a large swath of the proprietary, te proprietary technology, excuse me. So I think he's kind of straddling both lines and I don't really understand how, how long that can continue for. I think at some point they need to either say, hey, this is all open source, come build it on our platform. We have all this cool technology you can use or they've got to go focused on closed ecosystem and try to build what Apple has, but I don't think they have the brand power and the consumer trust to do that. Yeah, and also it's almost like by continuing to make their own devices, he kind of secretly aspires to be Apple, but he doesn't really say that. And he's trying to be an open platform while still building his own devices and not really opening it up to anyone like the Android did. Uh, and maybe it's because it's not ready yet, TBD. Um, but anyway, I, I think you're making a really great point. I want to switch gear and talk about the other point I wanted to double click on, which is blockchain and, and so on and so forth. You know, I had a great conversation with Kathy Wood, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago, and we talked about the notion of what is a user-owned internet and 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 how do how are these technologies are going to be relevant to people. I think from a social standpoint, it is clearly a movement that people care about uh, and wanting to own the assets and so on and so forth. I question the very nature of that hypothesis. Do people, tr is most of the world population truly going to care about that. There's a reason why the web and the internet became very successful after 2005, and that is because aggregators made life easier. Destinations have been built that made it very simple for people to use, access, and interact on the internet. There's a reason why WhatsApp, Instagram, uh, Snapchat, TikTok are among the most used platforms around the world. There's a reason why Roblox works. There, there's a reason why these quote-unquote, centralized environment work. Now, I'd like to believe that people, organizations like that will understand that people want more access, more flexibility, more control, but I definitely am not in the side of the open source or decentralized maximalism, and I'm very much in the camp of, I think some of these large platforms will understand that they need to enable more interoperability and more control and ownership for users and the winners will be the ones that figure out how to do that built on top of they've already enabled versus completely new forms of decentralized platform that are so in uh, that are so uh, disruptive to the model of today and even if that happens and they will disrupt the whole ecosystem we may be talking about 20 30 40 50 years until that will really come to life what's your pov yeah. i i i think i think also developers in the Web3 ecosystem are asking the wrong questions of consumers, right? If you go to a consumer and you ask, do you want to control your digital identity on the internet in Web3, most consumers will say, what is Web3? If you say, are you concerned with privacy on the internet and large platforms owning and using your data for, for, for their monetization, most consumers would say yes, right? And so I think from a marketing perspective, honestly, Web3 needs to rethink how they go to the consumer because we've talked at length on, on, on previous episodes about how the Web3 ecosystem is a relatively closed ecosystem. Like, I haven't seen updated numbers, but at one point it was like 80% of NFTs were owned by like 10,000 wallets. So like, you know, I, I'm sure it's still roughly consistent today. So, you know, the, the industry is relatively small and closed and it's not very 
you know, it's, it's, and, and so people within it need to look outside of it and ask questions that the average consumer will, will appreciate and take value in and build applications and build services that, that solve those pain points rather than have these maximalist quasi-political ideals about what the internet should be and almost force that into people. I think, I think if you came at it from, Hey, we, there's a problem we want to solve it. And that was why Paul Bettner was interesting and inspired me because for him, it's not some political, economic, financial motivation thing. It was, we want to do something. Blockchain was the set of protocols that we identified that can do that, that nothing else could. Let's use blockchain. That is a fantastic thing. And more companies are starting to do that today. We talked about kind of the, the next generation of blockchain games, apps, metaverse platforms, whatever, being less financially driven and more driven by, hey, what can blockchain do natively and differently that's really going to uh, make consumers interested? That's that's where I've shifted focus to. And, and I think the companies that are doing that are going to be the ones that have staying power and really successful services in the next call it decade. Yeah. And I, and I also think that there is a lot to be proved again on the notion of a user owned internet presence. Do people really care about it? Do people really want it? And I think at the end of the day, what concerns me the most about that wave and I think that's why you're really seeing very few people at the moment caring about the NFTs is that there was a lot of greed and it was very much financially driven, which is not a bad thing, but it's definitely not the core motivator for majority of the world population to interact around content and games. And I still am a bit surprised to see statements of people who are claiming that play to earn in few years is going to be like 95% of games and gamers. I, I just, I just fail to understand how could that be the majority when most people are never going to play video games because of financial incentives. Um, people don't play game because they expect to be paid for their time. People play games to enjoy, to be entertained. It's like saying people are going to go to the movies because they want to be paid for their time. I, I, that's like what I fail to understand from a social, from a humanistic perspective. And, 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 and so, you know, I think for me, part of that category is really proving why, what are some of the fundamental of user owned internet? What does that actually mean to people and why would people really, really care about it? Um, so I want to switch gears and talk a bit about, you know, um, we did our first episode of into the metaverse still in your Bloomberg days, uh, in, in, into the metaverse, you know, version one. Back in October 2021, I think it was just before Facebook changed its name to Meta, a few weeks before. And so I wanted to ask you, with the work you're doing, obviously, with, you know, Roundhill Investments and the work you guys are doing with the first Metaverse ETF that you launched, what has changed in the Metaverse space since we've done that first episode? What would you say are kind of the three key events that you recall over the past two years almost now? that you feel are really going to be shaping what's happening in the next two to three years? Roblox is twice as big in terms of DAO. I mean, that that's important, right? I mean, it's been not even two years and Roblox's DAO has almost doubled. I think, I, I, I mean, there's always going to be a question of in the markets, what do you value and what do you pay for these things? But you have companies like Epic and Roblox that are growing user base, growing time spent, growing all of the key metrics. There's clearly the groundswell of momentum that we expected that we continued to to see in terms of engagement in these platforms has continued. 
uh, and continued quite strongly. So I think from a overall high-level thesis, it, it's playing out as expected. Now, what we've seen in the markets, we, we thought, I mean, there was a broad-based re-rating of non-profitable technology, which a lot of companies in the metaverse basket, like a Roblox or a Unity, fall into. And, and we've seen a massive re-rating of how people value those the stocks. And that's a whole different discussion in terms of just what is what is something worth. But in general, mo- most of the companies that were identified as leaders, we talked, you know, I think we talked, you talked with Angela Dalton, I missed that episode, but what was it? it? What was the acronym she came up with? It was Discord, Unity, NVIDIA, Roblox, and Epic Games, uh, Indoor. That was the acronym, right? I mean, those companies, you can, we can debate Unity, but other than Unity, those companies are largely thriving. Uh, and, and so it, you know, it is, it is a powerful kind of, uh, it's powerful to look back and just say, hey, what we expected is working. Now, the market valuations have shifted and that that's affected the individual stock prices, the stock price of the ETF that we have. But overall, I, I, I think we always knew this was a long-term decade plus transition. The market probably got ahead of itself. We even said that. The market corrected through the, the trough of disillusionment as Gartner called it in the Gartner hype cycle. And here we are you know, METV, the Metaverse ETF, was one of the best performing equity ETFs in the U.S., excluding crypto funds in the first quarter, and I think through April as well and through May. So, you know, it started to come back. It started to improve its performance. You know, it's it's people are, are, are reassessing the prospects of the companies that are really driving the development of the Metaverse. And, you know, we can talk about generative AI and how that ties in, but obviously some of that has to do with NVIDIA and NVIDIA becoming this this next great beacon of, of growth across technology, but uh, it's it's clear that the long-term thesis is playing out as planned, if not potentially even better in terms of what we're seeing on some of these leading platforms. It, it's just a function of understanding that it's a long time until we get to the destination and not getting ahead of ourselves like we did in 2021. And you called out NVIDIA and we talked to Rev Liberidian about the metaverse and the omniverse here on the podcast a couple of times already. And really the incredible and the pioneering work that NVIDIA is doing across so many areas of execution related to the next era of the internet, both on the consumer side and the enterprise side. And so what are some of the, when you think about NVIDIA as a company and as a platform, what is the major contribution that you see a company like NVIDIA making when we talk about the evolution of enterprise experiences or engagement with virtual worlds, digital twins, and also the work they're doing that impacts the consumer segment. Six months ago, 12 months ago, I would have said it was Omniverse and digital twins, but I think that's completely changed with what we've seen with generative AI. One of the things we talked about early in the podcast with like Mark Witten and, and Rev and, and Mark Petit was the Holy Grail is making content creation, virtual world creation, experience creation as low code, no code as possible. Generative AI is the technology that does that. I didn't know that at the time, but in hindsight, that is exactly what we were describing. It's an interface that doesn't require any coding expertise to build experiences, to build content, to create content. Now, it needs to be refined. It's not in full production gear yet, but it's clear that we're getting there a lot quicker than people thought. I mean, ChatGPT is only six months old, and it's amazing how, be- how much better it's gotten. It can search the internet now. So... It's clear that generative AI is this massive groundswell technology that's going to unlock the creator economy and enable people to express themselves and build worlds and do things that they couldn't do before without knowing specific coding languages. 
whether that's the consumer side or the enterprise side, you know, on the enterprise, you're talking about, have you ever tried to find a file buried in some corporate intranet, you know, where it's like it's nested within eight different folders and you can't find the file path? Corporate search, enterprise search stinks. You can't find anything. Well, generative AI can be the tool that does that if you have a natural language interface on top of a machine learning algorithm that can go in and find things for you. That is really powerful for the enterprise. So, you know, a year ago, I would have said it was Omniverse and Digital Twins. But as we sit here today, NVIDIA is the engine, the, the hardware powering AI, generative AI, and the next computing platforms inside the data centers, which is accelerated compute. So servers that don't run on CPUs, they run on specialized chips for GPUs. And NVIDIA basically owns that market, 80 plus percent market share. Uh, you, you look at the new servers they, they're launching, they're insanely powerful. And it's not just GPUs that make them differentiated. It is their prowess with the entire system. They bought Mellanox to, to do the networking. They have all the other associated pieces that go into that, this in-house technology that's been developed over 15 years to make the most efficient AI training systems out there. So you know, the bear case is, yes, Google's going to make their own chips. Amazon's making their own chips. Microsoft will make its own chips. AMD, Broadcom, name the chip company. They're going to do something with AI. But no one has the whole ecosystem approach, the whole system approach that NVIDIA. And when you talk about the price performance trade-off, no one's going to breach their moat, we think, within two years. And I'm going down the rabbit hole of AI systems. But, uh, you know, when you think about, again, to make this massive scale for the consumer, for the enterprise, the infrastructure is going to be the most important first layer in these early innings, and NVIDIA is the go-to source for that infrastructure layer. So as we see that roll out, as we see that built so other platforms can take advantage of that, that's going to be extremely powerful in, in opening up creators. Exactly. And I think with the, you know you finished with the point, which I think for the evolution of a metaverse or you know this massive network of interoperable virtual worlds over the internet we're going to need incredible amount of content that is built by creators and people that take advantage of multiple new technologies. Generative AI is one of them, other AI forms that will evolve in the future, other tools that companies like Roblox, Epic, NVIDIA are building and making something that really allow millions of millions of people around the world to create content of a next generation. It happened with video and content like that, YouTube, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, all very much democratize the creation of, you know, images and videos in the most fundamental way and unlocked creation for billions of people around the world. I think the next 10 years are going to really be about technologies and companies like Roblox, Epic, NVIDIA, and more unlocking the ability of millions of millions of people around the world to create content for a 3D internet. And that could be virtual goods, virtual assets, worlds, gameplay experiences, and the way I think about generative AI is going to be an incredible extension of the human ingenuity and innovation and not a replacement. I don't think it's just going to be AI building stuff on their own. It's going to be powered and will enable human creativity and innovation. And But it will do so in a way that is a thousand times faster and bigger than anything we've seen before. And that's what I'm personally excited about is how technology ultimately amplifies human endeavor not replaces human endeavor. I think there will be painful changes because of that, but that's always been the case with human ingenuity. Let's, I mean, I'll just, <clears throat> I'll quote Strauss Zelnick, CEO of Take-Two. Generative AI, the new tools we're seeing is just like the advent of the calculator. 
the calculator didn't take people's jobs. It just made them more efficient. Now, if you didn't learn how to use a calculator and you stuck with doing math by hand, you might've lost your job to someone that knew how to use it, right? But overall, like generative AI is just a tool. It's just a technology. It's just a productivity enabler. I mean, it's a massive productivity enabler is what it really is, right? I can have ChatGPT with the Bing or Google plugins go and search for stuff for me while I'm doing something else and save me time. So I don't have to click into every link to find something that's massively powerful from a productivity perspective. And so as you think about enabling companies, uh, creators, whomever to do more with what they have, that's going to be massively powerful. It's going to enable companies, particularly if you think about gaming companies, right? You know, projects that in the past were not, were cost prohibitive. They couldn't do it because of the cost to do it. Now with generative tools, Maybe the cost curve works in their favor that they can now green light things they couldn't do before. They can do more with what they had. They can save money on generating levels and worlds, you know, just prototyping. The computer can do that now for them and they can focus on more of the value added stuff aside from that. And so there's ways to reallocate resources and become more efficient to do more with what you have. And that's just going to, you know, Goldman estimates the impact on the global economy from that at $7 trillion annually in a decade. So yeah, I mean, I see it with my team now. Like we're, you know, some of my artists use MidJourney. MidJourney is not replacing my artists. They're using MidJourney to help themselves do more, do faster, be more creative. And I think this is just a tiny, tiny sample of what is about to come. But doing so in a way that is really going to create capabilities for millions of millions of people around the world. And also at any age and wherever they are around the world with whatever skill set they have. And I love the analogy of the calculator. I think it's right. If you don't know how to use these new technologies, you're going to left, be left behind. So you got to jump on the wagon and figure out what these tools mean for you. But definitely they're here to stay and it's only the beginning of a whole new era of creativity, I believe, with digital tools. Um, Matthew, with that in mind, I want to conclude the terrific conversation. But one thing to ask as we finalize is what's the one thing you want the audience to take from our conversation today as we envision the next couple of years I mean, in the category. I mean, I think it's what we've said all along. We're playing the long game when we think about the metaverse, when we think about the next internet platform, right? It's it's incredibly easy to be short-sighted. It's incredibly easy to look at 2022 and say, the metaverse died, right? And Business Insider wrote that article, the metaverse is dead because there's no one in Horizon for, for meta, right? And so I think it's very easy to play Monday morning quarterback looking at a short time span when people that are really building this and focusing on this have been playing the long game for a long time and understand that, you know, we're probably still a decade, maybe seven years, whatever you want to say, from truly realizing the vision of the metaverse and what it's supposed to be. Part of that is simply the technology is still being developed, the underlying technology is being built. And, and part of it is simply, it, it's just, it's a, it's a reflection that these things don't happen overnight. Um, and you know, I, I, I say this about NVIDIA, their data center success is a, is a 15, is an overnight success made fit made over the last 15 years. They've been developing the technology for 15 years and hit at the right time. Roblox is still a relatively young company. And we talked specifically about it being a very relatively young business, right? It's the company has been around in, in since 2006. Is that right? But as it from a business, they really started being a business in like 2019, 2020. So it's, uh, you know, companies like that, companies like Epic are still at the very early stages of, of maturing a, a, as companies, as, as enterprises, and really figuring out how they get to the end state they want to be that. So what I, would, what I would say in short is don't be short-sighted with, with the metaverse development. Understand the long game is still being played. 
Yeah, well put. And I think anyone who claims the metaverse is dead misses the point that the metaverse hasn't really arrived yet and also is not paying attention to the work that companies like Epic, Roblox, NVIDIA, and others have been doing for the past 15, 20 years. Much more to come, much more to come. Matthew, man, so great to have you again doing this. has been so much fun. We're going to do this again, I'm sure, in the near future. But in the meantime, thank you. thanks have for taking one. the time to join me. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Into the Metaverse. We hope you learned a lot and explored new aspects of the metaverse. 